Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have part four of our five-part series focused around the first few weeks of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions taken by Private Dwayne Turner, combat medic serving with the 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment, part of the 101st Airborne Division in southern Baghdad on April 13th, 2003. Now we're diving into these kind of this kind of mini series type format because we traditionally have bounced around a lot between different conflicts and different periods of time. And I thought that if we could zero in a little bit, we might have a storyline that kind of carries from one to the next to the next to the next. And if you were to look back on this five part series, you really kicked off part one talking about the lead up to the Iraq war, kind of the preparing for war and the case for war, if you will into the Battle of Nasiriyah, where hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca was awarded the Navy Cross for saving lives in the midst of that battle. We moved forward with the Marine advance up Highway 1 towards Baghdad, when First Lieutenant Brian Shantosh was leading an anti-armor platoon that was ambushed by a group of 100 to 200 enemy fighters at close range right on the side of the road. Shantosh drove his truck directly into the enemy fire, dismounted, and cleared this modified trench and berm system of enemy fighters, killing at least 20 and, and wounding many, many more before getting back in his truck and continuing the advance to Baghdad. Shantosh for that action would also be awarded the Navy Cross. And then finally, in episode three, we talked about a Marine reservist, Sergeant Scott Montoya, that was moving through Baghdad, had entered Baghdad with the 23rd Marine Regiment. And as they were fighting, made multiple trips out into a street in the middle of an engagement with crossfire. Well, there's crossfire in the street. There were Iraqi soldiers firing from one direction, Americans, Marines firing from the other. He ran out into the middle of that engagement multiple times to pull at least three Marines out of the crossfire and one Iraqi civilian. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, we're not going to hit on every single major event of the Iraq war. We're not going to hit on every single award within the Iraq war within this, this mini series at least. So we're going to move forward a little bit to April 13th and April 13th is one day after the battle of Baghdad ends and the battle of Baghdad formally, when we look at it, we're going to call it about a one week battle, the third through the 12th of April, 2003 marks kind of the official in the history books battle of Baghdad. And if you recall the whole goal or one of the primary goals of the, the rapid American and coalition advance across Iraq was to get to Baghdad, cut the head off the snake. Like we've said more than once here, kill, capture Saddam and his, his senior lieutenants, push him into hiding, um, topple the government, top of the top, the Saddam Hussein, toppled the Saddam Hussein regime. And the Battle of Baghdad, when that wraps up on April 12th, 2003, that marks the end of Saddam's reign. He's in hiding, as are many of his, his, um, his top lieutenants. But really by this point, by 12 April 2003, we're hitting this turning point. There's generally not a military structure anymore in terms of the Iraqi military. So 
there's still going to be kind of subunits that will fight. There's going to be a lot more militias starting to form. But in terms of a formal military structure issuing orders from the top down, that's kind of stopping by 12 April. But this also marks just this kind of weird time in the war. I mean, nobody knows what's coming next. And nobody on on really any side. There were a lot of estimates and a lot of thoughts in the United States and and on the coalition side, there were arguments made from, you know, I'll just hit a couple of the extremes. On the one hand, people were saying there was a thought that the Iraqi people are ready. They want to rise up. They want to, they want to run and govern and manage their own country and their own resources. If we could only get rid of this thorn in their side that is Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi people are ready. That's a loose generalization, but you also have on the other end of the spectrum, a loose generalization that says, hey, this could kick off a civil war and lead to a whole new wave of violence across the Middle East, through the whole region. So every base was covered, I guess I should say. When we look back now, I'm sure you can find somebody's um, prediction as to how the coming months, years, and, and now decades would look in Iraq. But nobody really knew the direction it would take. And to be fair to the the, uh, the U.S. military planners, because we do know that it tended to go the, the route of sectarian violence and the following years, it's going to sound weird, but after an invasion, it was the years after that that really were horrific for the Iraqi people, as well as any militaries like the United States that, that were involved. The, the losses would increase after the invasion. But to be fair, again, to the U.S. military, there were places when they were coming into Baghdad and across southern Iraq where they were greeted like liberators. And it's easy to want to see that or be excited when you see that or maybe maybe extrapolate that to kind of larger the larger operation. I mean, look at the name of the, the overall operation, Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? It's the idea that we're going to get in there and free, liberate the Iraqi people. And there most certainly were a lot of folks that felt that way. But at this point in, we'll say, mid-April 2003, it's not perfectly clear exactly the direction that this is going to go. Again, we've had a very narrow thrust, all things considered, from Kuwait up into Baghdad. There, there's a lot of Iraqi citizens that haven't had interactions yet with coalition forces. Now, Imagine you're an Iraqi citizen or you're living in Iraq somewhere and you wake up on 13 April and find out that your entire government infrastructure has fallen. It's gone. Your police force, gone. Your military, gone. Um, which the military had a pretty substantial domestic mission. You know, maybe we liked it, maybe we didn't. Um, they were still heavily involved in the day-to-day affairs across Iraq, at least more so than they were on April 13th. Police forces gone, not supported. Um, you know, at some point you start knocking out, removing or pushing into exile or hiding these leadership folks from across the Iraqi government. At some point, the, these, these, um, these organizations stop functioning. The bureaucracy stopped functioning. And I don't care how, you know, how free and open or, or how much of a dictator or how how much a dictator ran your country when you, you know, in the matter really overnight, in the matter of a couple short days, 
your entire infrastructure from police officers to firefighters to civil servants of any sort go away, who knows what's coming next, right? Nobody's really had a lot of experience with that. Waking up and finding out that, let's say it's not even waking up and finding out, what if you have a few weeks to prepare, that there's no longer going to be police in your city, in your country for the foreseeable future. And what comes out of that is, is at least in the short term, chaos. There's chaos, there's looting, widespread looting, um, which is understandable. Again, the entire government infrastructure is gone overnight. Well, we have to do something to bridge that gap. Pretty quickly, the American military and the coalition militaries involved in the invasion have a plan to start training Iraqi police forces and eventually an Iraqi military to step in and fill that gap. But there's going to be some kind of gap, and that's where we find ourselves in mid-April. That gap is going to be filled by the U.S. military. We're going to the – the coalition military, broadly speaking – we're going to move into cities, towns, villages across the country and provide, you know, if nothing else, that that law and order that may no longer be there because the Iraqi government is is being rebuilt from the ground up. You know, in a perfect world, the military is able to provide maybe some more services and things like that. But at baseline, right, baseline, let's let's provide security and keep the people safe. So as Baghdad falls on the 12th of April the mission kind of also shifts quickly. This is something the U.S. knew they were going to have to do, but all of a sudden all these units across the country get the word that we're going to have to fill this gap of security all across Iraq. And, and units are moved around and some hunker down and start to you know, establish control over their town, village, city, street, neighborhood, whatever it might be. And that's what the 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment, part of the 101st Airborne Division, is doing in southern, in southern Baghdad by 13 April 2003. Now, the end of or the fall of Baghdad also marks fall of Baghdad. It's kind of the same thing. It's thrown around fall of Baghdad, battle of Baghdad. Um, those terms are kind of intermixed. That also marks something else, a unique turning point in the war. It's a common refrain in this conflict to say one of the reasons that it's so deadly for all involved on both sides is that there's no front line, that anybody can be attacked anytime from any place. That wasn't always the case. You know, as American and coalition forces are moving into Iraq, there's a pretty clear front line as they're moving forward. That doesn't mean they're not susceptible to attacks in the rear, but that's no different than any conflict throughout history. But once Baghdad falls... Now the coalition and the United States military find themselves in the middle of Iraq, and now there truly is no front line. They could be attacked from anywhere. And on April 13, 2003, the 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment is attacked. They don't know what's coming. It's a surprise attack. And it's pretty heavy, pretty quick. Private Dwayne Turner is a combat medic serving in that battalion and moves towards the sound of gunfire to start working with wounded soldiers should that need arise. He gets there in his Humvee, and as he steps out of the Humvee, he's met with an enemy grenade detonating and peppering his body with shrapnel and sending him back into the truck from which he came. Now, a couple notes here before we continue on with Turner's story. First off, 
there's no minimum wounded requirement for somebody to tap out and say, I'm hurt, I'm wounded, I'm bleeding, whatever, and go to the aid station. It's, it's an individual kind of thing. You'll see people fight through things that, that others couldn't. And some people that have a, um, you know, the side of blood maybe makes them faint and they need to move, move to the rear. So that to say being peppered with shrapnel, 100% qualifies Turner to move directly to an aid station and take himself out of the fight. Nobody would have looked at him sideways for that. Of course, that's not what he's going to do. I also want to talk about shrapnel, which sounds a little bit weird, but I'm throwing that term around and, and want to make sure we're all on the same page at least. Shrapnel is, generally speaking, the loose fragments, the metal fragments that come off of a, a specific military type of ordnance. So when you're when you know in Afghanistan, for instance, when the Taliban are using plastic jugs and homemade explosives, there may not be shrapnel involved because it's plastic and fertilizer. But a mortar round going off or an artillery shell, or in this case, a grenade, they're designed to create shrapnel, many of them at least. And the shrapnel is, is it's designed to, to leave this object as it detonates in a jagged form, right? Because jagged cuts and it'll come out able to cut through parts of vehicles, through tires, through clothing, through flesh pretty easily. And if that's not bad enough that you've got some chunk of jagged metal flying in your direction, there's something kind of additional here about grenades. Well, all shrapnel in general, but when you get the larger caliber, like artillery shells and sometimes mortars, the shrapnel could cut a man in half. It's a, it's big chunks of shrapnel. You'll see that it could be the size of, you know, a few inches long, um, maybe longer at times. Grenades, when they detonate, it's small pieces of shrapnel generally, and they don't have the same power as like a large artillery shell, right? A grenade is smaller than an artillery shell. So what you'll see with grenades often is that when they detonate, the shrapnel will get lodged in a person's body, an inch, two inches into your leg, an inch into your your chest or your stomach. So it's still 100% capable of killing the person, but the, the, the shrapnel may not go all the way through you. Now, the other side of that is that shrapnel, now that it's sitting in your body, is red hot, searing hot, and you can't get it out. Not at a time like this. Like Turner gets hit with the shrapnel. He's not getting that out anytime realistically. So I say that because I think Turner's story, more than some of the most recent ones we've talked about, has a, has a part of it that's relatable. It's relatable because Turner's going to work through pain. And I think that's something any of us can relate to. Maybe not the type of pain he's going to have to endure. But compare that to, you know, Lieutenant Brian Shantosh that that runs out into an enemy trench and starts hammering enemy soldiers, picking up additional. Like, would you do that? I don't know. You can run it through your head and think about it. But very few people will ever in their life be in that type of situation to find out will they or will they not do exactly what uh, or, or even something similar to what Lieutenant Shantosh did. But just about everybody has experienced some degree of pain in some way, in one way or another. Maybe you sprained an ankle or you pulled a muscle in your back or you cut your hand. And, and as we're talking through Turner's story, just think about that. Think about the pain that he's experiencing because 
we all have our own thresholds and know when we have to dial it back. We just can't do that thing. And odds are that thing that we're talking about isn't going to be as important as what Turner's doing. Remember, he's a combat medic. His job on the battlefield here in Iraq is to save lives. So despite being blown back into the Humvee, he steps out, sees one of his fellow soldiers that's wounded worse than he is, starts treating the wounds and, and moves him to a casualty collection point. Casualty collection point is, as it sounds, it's a area where you would consolidate casualties in a battle like this. If you've been in an area for a longer period of time, maybe it's an outpost or, or a, a, a forward operating base, it might be more formalized. There might even be uh, medical supplies stashed there. But if it's more ad hoc, like on a patrol or on a movement, you might call out casualty collection points as you move past. It's kind of a covered and concealed position, generally as best you can out of the field of fire. And it, it provides one location for the medics to consolidate, for people to move the casualties. So you don't want your medic running around the battlefield trying to p- treat people in seven different directions. You move the casualties to one area and the medic can be more effective in that manner. You can provide, you can bring more medical supplies to that one area, right? So Turner moves this casualty back to the casualty collection point, begins treating them, but doesn't stop there. And it's worth talking now about the the challenge of casualties on the battlefield. And I, that kind of sounds silly, but picture a fight. And you have a finite number of soldiers on your side and, and a finite number of rifles, a finite number of medics. And you start losing soldiers that are wounded. Now, a wounded soldier may or may not be able to move themselves out of harm's way. They might need help to get back to this collection point for any sort of treatment. Who's going to go get them? And that, let's even assume that it just takes one person, which in many cases it might take two or more to pull a, a wounded soldier off the battlefield. Who goes to get him? Because you might need every rifle firing to keep the enemy at bay. Are you really able to take somebody off the line and 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 lower the volume of fire in a certain sector so you so that one person can go get the casualty? Who's going to be able to make that decision? Well, in a, in a perfect world, in a perfect scenario, the leader, whoever the leader on the ground is, has the the high level view of what's going on and can dictate, hey, we have somebody back here that's not being utilized or you, instead of getting ammunition, I need you to go get the casualty. But but there's not a good answer. There's always another place somebody could be utilized. And, and that same applies for medics because you don't want your medics necessarily running across the battlefield to try to pick up casualties because at this point, we already have wounded. We need Turner and his fellow medics treating the wounded, keeping them alive. So it falls on the leader in that specific circumstance to make the decision of who's going to go out, who's going who's to run into the fire to pick up the wounded soldiers. But time and again, it doesn't actually come to that because somebody takes it upon their own shoulders to do it anyways. That's Private Dwayne Turner in this case. And it, it fits well because he understands as he's treating the soldier that he is stabilized and he can step away and go out there to find other soldiers that are still on the battlefield that need to be brought back to the casualty collection point. So Turner runs back out and he's going to make multiple trips out into the fire. This is the area where there, there's gunfire raking the fields. There's, there's grenades detonating. This is the place where he was wounded and he's going to move back out there and make multiple trips. And in one of those trips, he is shot in the arm, breaking it. So now we have Turner who 
absolutely could have walked to the rear, if you will, or maybe just out of the fight and said, I got shrapnel on my body. Take me out of the fight. Didn't stop. Continued to move amongst his men to save his brothers in the battlefield. Now has been shot in the arm, breaking his arm. So searing hot shrapnel on his body. And now a broken arm, bleeding out, continues to, continues to pull soldiers off the battlefield as best he can. And after making a few more trips to bring wounded soldiers back to cover, Turner is treating them in the casualty collection point when he is struck by gunfire again, this time wounding him in the leg. So now Turner, who's been treating his brothers nonstop throughout this fight, has, wound, has been wounded by shrapnel from an enemy grenade, shot in the arm, and shot in the leg. He's leaning up against a wall when he starts to collapse due to blood loss. One of his fellow medics sees him and essentially says, hey, you have done enough. It's time for us to treat you now. Turner would survive the battle and survive the war. And for his actions that day on 13 April 2003, he was credited with treating at least 16 of his fellow soldiers, keeping them alive. And there were at least two soldiers in that mix who very well may not have made it home if it weren't for Dwayne Turner's actions. And for that, he'd be awarded the Silver Star. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.